Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. This is Pop Life from WAER. I'm Kendall Phillips, and I may be showing my age a bit, but I still love a newspaper. Actual, honest-to-goodness newspaper with all its crinkling and awkward folding and unfolding and different sections and flyers falling out onto the floor. And if you're like me, you know that everyone has their favorite newspaper section. Some folks grab the sports section first or maybe the business section For me, it was always the comics, and front and center in most of my daily newspapers was the soothing familiarity of a kid named Charlie and a dog named Snoopy. Charles Schultz's Peanuts ran for 50 years and appeared in more than 2,600 newspapers, becoming a cultural icon. But what do we really know about the Peanuts gang and how they impacted popular culture? Here to help us explore the dynamics within the iconic strip and its cultural impact is Dr. Michelle Abate. Dr. Abate is professor of literature for children and young adults at The Ohio State University, and her new book is entitled Blockheads, Beagles, and Sweet Baboos, New Perspectives on Charles M. Schultz's Peanuts. Michelle, welcome to Pop Life. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to have you, and I gotta say, I think you should get the award for the greatest title in the history of academic publishing. I mean, that, that, I absolutely love the title. Was that just a natural? Was that like the first thing you came up with? Was blockheads, beagles, and sweet baboos? Well, I am fond of wordplay and alliteration. You know, I think all English professors at heart are just word nerds, which is why we got our PhD so we could spend our time, you know, making puns and wordplay, you know, every day. And so, you know, I I felt like also that the title would be immediately recognizable to Peanuts fans by using some well-known expressions and terms from the strip. So it serves a number of purposes, including satisfying my my nerdy wordplay love. I, I absolutely love them. When I saw that title, I thought I've got to I got to speak to Dr. Abate. I've got to know uh, behind the scenes of this book. But one of the points you make in the book, and I, I think it's kind of interesting, is as much as Peanuts uh, is iconic, uh, and certainly you know, probably everyone on the planet can recognize Charlie Brown or Snoopy or Linus, um, Charles Schultz doesn't always get the credit for being uh, an artist who shaped the culture. Why do you think it is that that Schultz is kind of undervalued as a cultural creator? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, first off, during the second half of the 20th century, when Schultz was doing his work, comics hadn't quite yet become, you know, the serious kind of fodder for academic study that they are now. Now, you know, sequential art, graphic novels, comics, you know, manga, those are, you know, they've really become more uh, visible in American culture and gotten more respect in terms of being the subjects of serious scholarly analysis, or even just for regular people to pay attention to, whereas for much of the 20th century, they were seen as, you know, fun, but kind of disposable entertainment. You read it, you chuckled, you tossed the newspaper, you never thought about it again. So I think that's kind of part of it, is that for much of Schultz's career, the thought of taking comics seriously, studying them, writing about them, being an academic who taught them and published on them was just kind of unthinkable. Um, So that's a piece of it. And I think the other piece of it is that Schultz himself was very humble. Mm. Um, He wasn't one of those very kind of self-promoting, egotistical sort of figures. Um, He often, you know, said that he didn't really consider what he did art, you know, that he loved what he did. He was proud of his work, but 
you know, that he didn't really consider cartooning art. He, you know, always thought it had a strong commercial impulse. And, you know, so his kind of humble personality and the humble way he described comics and cartooning, I think also played a role in, you know, in the the kind of paradoxical state of, on one hand, Peanuts has been a huge influence on American culture, but on the other hand, it's only in the past, you know, maybe decade or so that it's really gotten the attention of cultural critics and then literary critics like me. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I do think, especially now, we're a few years removed and, and probably some generations who, who now have not really grown up with, you know, Peanuts coming out regularly, They've probably seen classics or the reruns or the cartoons. It is probably easy to underestimate just how big an impact Peanuts had. Can you talk a little about just the sheer scope and scale of the impact of that comic strip on the culture broadly? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned this in my acknowledgments that it, it's hard for me to, so I was born in 1975, speaking of giving away our ages, I, <laughs> I'm i a, a Gen X uh, girl, and I was born in 1975 during sort of the height of the kind of golden era mm. of the peanut strip. And my childhood was just awash in Snoopy and Charlie Brown. And, you know, it's hard to imagine what my childhood and even my own life and personality would have been like. I mean, you know, there were the Sunday comics and the news, well, the daily comics and the Sunday comics, which I enjoyed and love. But there were also many, many paperback reprints of all of the strips that had appeared over the many decades, which I also devoured. We would go to the public library and I would borrow you know, often as many paperbacks as they had in the spinner rack or that the library would allow a kid to check out. I forget what the limit was for a <laughs> child to check out of the library, but I remember butting up against that with all of the paperbacks of Peanuts. As many as were there, I would try to check them out. In addition, there was so much licensing and merchandising. Mm. I had, you know, Snoopy plush Snoopy dolls. There were all the outfits that Snoopy wore at the time. There was, you know, Snoopy had all these outfits that he could dress up in every conceivable, you know, profession. He could dress as a surgeon. He could dress as a pilot, you know, and then, you know, there was bedding, there was clothing, there was toys, there were backpacks. I mean, it, it just really, it, and I loved it. You know, I didn't see it now. I think sometimes merchandising and licensing we feel more cynical now. We feel mm. like we're being marketed to and these items are being pushed on us. But at least for me in my childhood in the last couple decades of the 20th century in the 80s and the 90s, we love that stuff. We were, you know, we were yearning for it. We, you know, when there was a new Snoopy calendar, a new Snoopy t-shirt, that was joy. That wasn't, you know, kind of an eye roll response of, oh, here they are, you know, <laughs> marketing to us and pushing this to us. So it's kind of, it's kind of, I mean, the culture was just awash in peanuts and, you know, everyone loved it. Of course, too, there was also the animated specials, you know, the Thanksgiving special, the Christmas special, you know, the balloons and the Macy's Day Parade. You know, I even remember, I'm not sure if you remember, but the songs, um, you know, there there were a couple of pop songs. Was it the Royal Guardsman, I think, had a oh, couple yeah. of hits um, about Snoopy and the Red Baron, which were on the radio. Not that often, but often enough that, you know, when I listened to them as I was researching this book, the nostalgia was strong. <laughs> so, yeah, it was. Yeah, it really was. I hadn't thought about those songs for a while, but they had a whole album of Peanuts themed songs that were on the radio of Snoopy fighting the Red Baron. If you don't know that song out there, trust me, go to YouTube, find it, listen to it. You'll be better for it. You'll thank me for it. It's great. So, yeah, it was just such a part of, you know, from the 1950s through the 2000s um, of American culture, not just in the newspapers, but in every facet of American culture, visual culture, material culture, television, film, everywhere. 
Yeah, it, is, it was amazingly ubiquitous, and it, it is interesting, especially now where, where we don't see it as much to kind of recognize how it was everywhere. And a lot of that, of course, was those licensing agreements, MetLife and everything else. There, there does seem to be, a, I guess I'll call it a gentle point of tension between uh, at least my view of the, the Peanuts comic strip as being this kind of simple view of America and it's also part of a multi-probably-billion-dollar <laughs> retailing, uh, you know, interpre- enterprise. Um, it, it, was that a problem for Schultz, the recognition that on the one hand he's presenting this kind of simple meditation on life in America? On the other hand, there's multi-million-dollar endorsement deals being signed. Not at all. In fact, he, you know, he was criticized by some other cartoonists, so I won't name by name, but you could Google and find out <laughs> for all of the bonanza of merchandising um, you know, and how many licensing agreements, you know, from I forgot about the MetLife commercials, there was just so much. Um, and he was criticized by some, you know, for sort of selling out um, and kind of, I don't know, like, weakening the strength of the comic by having it appear in so many different cultural venues. But he would often, you know, respond by saying, you know, comics were created, you know, to sell newspapers. They themselves were a commercial impulse, a commercial force that when comics began in the 1890s, they were put in the newspaper to sell more copies of the newspaper. So to separate comics from, you know, capitalism, commercialism, merchandising, licensing, you know, is really kind of a false dichotomy. And that would be kind of his defense. And, you know, and again, as I said, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the the merchandise that was out there, I think people, people enjoyed seeing it, people enjoyed buying it, they enjoyed having it. I don't think that many folks felt like it was being pushed on the culture or pushed on, you know, the marketplace. I think there was much more of a pull of people wanting it, loving it, enjoying it, collecting it. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe there was just a different attitude towards merchandising and licensing that has shifted in the 21st century, given how, I mean, now, even before something becomes popular, it is licensed and merchandised up the wazoo, whereas before something had to be popular first, you had to kind of demonstrate there was a market to sell all these items before you, you know, had those agreements, whereas now that's shifted a little bit. And now, I mean, I'm sure, you know, like before uh, any movie for kids, especially an animated movie is even released, the merchandise hits the stores. I mean, you can't avoid the backpacks, the t-shirts, and the movie isn't even out yet and it's everywhere. So maybe that, maybe that's another yeah, it seems like they're trying to manufacture our love for a media product as opposed to Peanuts, where I think the love, I'm with you, I think oh, we, yes. we loved those characters. And so if I could buy a pair of pajamas or a lunchbox or, or MetLife insurance, for that matter. Now, your book is organized, I think, quite interestingly, around some of the key characters. Uh, and of course, many of those are, are iconic. Um, so let's talk a little bit your chapter about Charlie Brown and a kind of interesting take on Charlie Brown and his iconic zigzag uh, T-shirt. What, what What's the analysis there of our friend Charlie Brown? Yeah, well, you know, his his zigzag T-shirt is arguably as iconic as, you know, Snoopy's red doghouse or Linus's blue security blanket. And for, you know, for many decades, it's just been seen as something kind of visually distinctive to help separate Charlie Brown from all the other characters. There's quite an ensemble cast in Peanuts. And especially early on, there was a worry that there were too many characters and that readers wouldn't be able to tell who was who. And that might be hard to, you know, for them to get into the strip and connect with the characters if they felt like I'm confused, you know, who's this one, who's that one. So I think Schultz may have added the zigzag on his shirt just to distinguish Charlie Brown as the protagonist. Here he is. You can't miss him. The zigzag's very distinctive. And it's just been seen as kind of like a nice fashion statement on his shirt so we can identify him. Well, and I make a case that, yes, the zigzag does serve that purpose. But the zigzag can also be viewed in a very different way as a triangle wave. Mm. Um, 
Um, and triangle waves permeate all kinds of different media from, you know, physics and, you know, and uh, I'm forgetting all the lists now from my chapter, but radio waves um, and sound waves. And in sound, a, a triangle wave is the way that you map a odd harmonic. Mm. Um, and so if we look at Charlie Brown's zigzag shirt as a triangle wave mapping an odd harmonic and odd harmonics are the sounds that like brass instruments make. So like the trombones, womp, womp, <laughs> or a trumpet's blast, those, that would be an odd harmonic. And if we think of Charlie Brown's zigzag shirt as a triangle wave, every strip he's in, he's kind of adding that womp, womp of a trombone, you know, visually through that symbol on his shirt. And this might sound crazy. This might sound really far-fetched and maybe even, you know, maybe reading too much into it, but Schultz has a lot of musical notation um, mm -hmm. throughout his comics. You think of Schroeder at the piano and all the bars of music that are played and how playful Schultz is with playing around with that musical notation. You know, Woodstock flies into the bars of music and gets stuck as if it's a birdcage. Snoopy, mm -hmm. you know, destroys them so he can lay on the piano. They poke at Lucy in the, you know, so she can't bug him. You know, so visually representing music and musical notation is certainly not something that's unusual in the penis strip. And what if we think of Charlie Brown's shirt as a different way to kind of represent sound that's in keeping with Schultz's interest and in kind of visually representing music and musical notation. So that that's, you know, maybe longer answer than you anticipated, but that's sort of my argument in that that chapter about Charlie Brown of taking a different look at his zigzag shirt as a triangle wave. No, I, I actually thought it may, I will say when I first started reading that chapter, I thought, okay, really? And then by the time I, I was at the end, because, you know, certainly if we think about transmedial peanuts, so we were out of the comic strip proper and into all the other uh, iterations. I can't help but think of peanuts without hearing some of those iconic piano tunes or the music or the adults always sounding like a trombone, wah, 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 right? Uh, and then even the idea of Charlie Brown just as being an an odd harmonic. I mean, I feel like sometimes I feel like my life is spent in the same kind of odd harmonic way. So um, I think it makes a very, very interesting point. Speaking of odd characters, you also talk a little about Snoopy. And I love the idea that Snoopy is not a dog. He is a cat. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Snoopy's personality. It's far more canine or far more feline than canine. I mean, he's such a finicky eater. He's very judgmental. You know, he's he, he's so like there's so much usually dogs, you know, are everybody's best friend. They love playing. He doesn't play fetch. He doesn't want to go for a walk. He does not go on a leash. You know, Snoopy is Snoopy has opinions. Snoopy's also, you know, like a very, you know, he's someone who's interested in a lot of different activities and professions and kind of echoing sort of cat-like qualities. He's a world famous, you know, everything, you know, he, he thinks very highly of himself. He has these delusions of grandeur. So a lot of his personality, you know, he's definitely drawn as a dog. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's presented <laughs> as a canine, but his personality is far more in keeping with what we stereotypically think of as feline personality traits. And so that chapter makes a case for kind of the feline nature of Snoopy. I think Snoopy's an interesting character because if there was, if this was a sitcom and we talked about the breakout star, and it's often not the lead character, but there's always a secondary character who kind of becomes the center of the piece. Snoopy really was that. I mean, Snoopy just seemed to become the face of Peanuts, even though ostensibly the the strip is really the story of Charlie Brown. What was it about Snoopy that just drew so much reader attention? Well, Snoopy really kind of comes to the forefront in like the 70s, the 80s, and that was a real critique of the strip that people felt 
But as Snoopy became more and more the protagonist and moved away from Charlie Brown being the focus, that the strip suffered, that when Charlie Brown was the focus, the strip was more about existential angst and disappointments and failures and, you know, really kind of struggling with sort of bigger philosophical issues. Whereas the strips focusing on Snoopy were about these fantastical battles with the, you know, the the Red Baron or Snoopy mm. just leaning up against a doghouse as Joe Cool, you know, and that the strip wasn't as deep and interesting that it had gotten more kind of superficial because Snoopy had become kind of too human in the later strips as Snoopy's character evolved. And Snoopy did become much more human as the strip evolved in the 1950s when he debuts, he walks on all fours. He is drawn, you know, like he's recognizable as Snoopy, but the way he's rendered is much more in keeping with how a beagle might look or even a dachshund might look. But later on, he stands up on his back legs. He's much more, he wears clothes. He's much more (laughs) human-like. And certainly he does become human-like, but I also make a case that, you know, he becomes much more cat-like at the same time, you know, that he's not only becoming more human, but as he kind of, his personality evolves, he has a lot more feline traits and his finicky food choices. And, you know, his, he, he often, you know, doesn't remember Charlie Brown's name. It's, oh, you know, that round-headed kid who feeds me, you know, these very, you know, whereas dogs normally, you know, like, oh, they love everybody and they're happy to eat anything. And, you know, they want to play ball and play fetch and all these things that Snoopy does not do. Yeah. Yeah, Snoopy had a, a very full inner life, which does seem much more much more cat-like. But I think you, you raise a really interesting point because it is probably the case for, for folks who have not spent as much time with the strips uh, as you have that we can forget that there was a lot of much more sort of existential seriousness, uh, I guess especially in the early years, where it was much more about sort of a young kid facing the reality of life and mortality and failure and, and frustration and um, do you think in some ways that Peanuts is kind of a work of American philosophy? I, I do. Yeah. I mean, in fact, there were several little like small gift books, little small hardback gift books. I mean, there was the philosophy of Linus, who's arguably the most philosophical character. I mean, even if you're more familiar with the animated TV specials um, than you are with the strip, you know, Linus has that big speech in the Christmas special. And, you know, if there's a moment for reflection or philosophizing, it's usually Linus who does it. And yeah, there there were a couple volumes about the philosophy of Linus. And when the strip came out in the 1950s, it was radical in many ways, in part because it presented young people, these, you know, kids who were in elementary school as being, as having these profound thoughts, mm-hmm. as grappling with big existential issues, again, as facing failure, disappointment, you know, and really kind of being very reflective and contemplative during a time in the 1950s when kids were, especially white, middle-class suburban kids, were seen as just kind of happy-go-lucky, innocent, riding their bikes, you know, kind of living their best lives and having nary a care in the world. Whereas, you know, the cast in Peanuts, especially Charlie Brown, they have lots of care of worries and cares and concerns and hangups and foibles and all kinds of neuroticisms and <laughs> idiosyncrasies. Um, and that really endeared, you know, those figures to the audience then. And I think the audience now, it makes them relatable. You know, even when you're young, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon. You, you, I mean, childhood is a lot about failure. You sure. try something, you fail, you know, you're, you're too big, you're too small. You don't know you, I mean, how many times do you fall down off your bike while you're trying to learn how to ride a bike? You know, I mean, innumerable times you crash, you know, and that's, you know, pretty much childhood in a nutshell is trying new things and, you know, learning how things work and often failing at them. And that's okay. That's part of, you know, that's part of the process of growing up and figuring out your strengths, your weaknesses, and, you know, also getting yourself prepared for life in general. Life is, you know, full of amazing, wonderful accomplishments, but also sometimes really disappointing setbacks. 
you know, I think I think one of the points you make quite well in the book, and, and I think is absolutely true, as a reminder, is, is how much peanuts, in its more profound moments, helped us not just to sugarcoat over those feelings that that failure and, and disappointment are real, whether you're in elementary school or you're an, an older man like myself, uh, that those things are real and that those feelings are real, and that the the strip kind of helped people reflect on that and recognize that that is part of a kind of universal human condition. It seems to me one of the other places uh, that it's easy for people to forget that Peanuts was, um, I guess in some ways quite radical, was the inclusion of the character Franklin. And you write a little bit about Franklin in your book. So talk to us a little bit about Franklin's debut and what that meant to the comic strips in general. Yeah, so Franklin famously makes his debut in the summer of 1968 um, in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King. It wasn't actually Schultz's idea to include Franklin. He instead he got a letter from a white school teacher um, suggesting, you know, that this might be a good idea. That you know the nation is so you know there's so much racial strife. There's all these been all these assassinations of civil rights figures, and you know it might go a long way towards you know you know, to to add a black character to his all white cast of, you know, of comics figures. Um, and this is also at the time when there aren't too many, you know, black cartoonists and certainly not too many strips that have black characters, let alone, you know, black protagonists uh, in the newspaper funny pages. And at first, Schultz is resistant to do it. Um, he's concerned that, you know, he doesn't really know much about what it's like to be a young black boy in the U.S. You know, he worries that his portrayal might seem patronizing or just might be so off the mark that it's offensive, you know, and so he's hesitant to do it. But eventually the school teacher uh, persuades him and he creates a strip that debuts in the summer of 1968. And Charlie Brown and Franklin meet on a beach, uh, which is a very kind of political mm. site, you know, given the segregation of swimming places and beaches. So having them encounter each other on a beach itself kind of makes a strong statement towards desegregation. Um, and it's a very, you know, the strip, the the initial debut of Franklin happens over a couple days. Um, Charlie Brown and Franklin talk about their dads and about baseball. And at the end of it, um, Charlie Brown invites Franklin to come over sometime, you know, to play and hang out. And, you know, so it's it's not, I mean, the interaction between the two characters is not, you know, they're not like having a big philosophical debate or certainly <laughs> not discussing the civil rights moment, but just the fact that they encounter each other, they interact with each other, like that alone was pretty revolutionary. And again, during a time when very few comics, especially by white cartoonists, featured non-white characters, and very few non-white male cartoonists had access to even get their work in the American newspapers. Um, so that's kind of the background for Franklin. And over the decades, he's been almost universally lauded as, you know, a tremendously progressive figure that broke the color line and that, you know, went a long way towards, you know, kind of helping to create, you know, a better, you know, not only diversity, but also awareness and empathy and compassion. You know, Franklin's such a, a likable character. That said, uh, my chapter takes a little bit of a different take mm -hmm. on Franklin. Um, I take a look at the shading that Schultz used to uh, indicate that Franklin's skin was black as opposed to white. And I observe that Franklin's shading, the line shading that he uses to indicate that Franklin's skin is black is the same type of line hatching that Schultz used to indicate that Pigpen's skin is dirty, yeah. which is obviously hugely problematic to equate blackness with dirt. And to be clear, I'm not saying at all that Schultz did this on purpose in any way, shape, or form. I'm not trying to make a case that Schultz was intentionally being racist, that he was trying to suggest that blackness and dirtiness are the same. Of course, there's a long, long history in American culture of equating blackness with dirtiness. 
tons of very racist soap ads throughout the 19th century, you know, used that trope about how their soap was so great that it could turn a black child white. And I'm certainly not trying to suggest that Schultz was intentionally feeding into that racist stereotype and those racist caricatures. I'm just making the point that this is how systemic racism works. This is how insidious, you know, things like this become. You don't even notice um, that these equations are happening. But if you look at, and my chapter does this, if you take a look at the representation of Franklin and you put him side by side with, with Pigpen, they look strikingly similar in the way that their faces are rendered, their skin is rendered, their arms are rendered. It's really, it's really kind of shocking um, and unfortunate that even on an unconscious level, you know, for many decades, for many readers, that Franklin is rendered in a way that makes him look not just black, but dirty the way that Pigpen is rendered. And so my chapter talks about this, calls attention to it, um, and also points out that in the 80s, um, Schultz did change the way he represented Franklin. He started using, um, there are these kind of stickers that cartoonists can use for shading. Um, they have all kinds of different patterns on them, different colors, different you know, designs on them, and they can use these stickers in their work and then use like a exacto knife to cut out the parts they don't want shaded. And they can shade a character with these stickers that have these machine printed um, shading patterns on them instead of hand shading. And so in the 1980s, Schultz did shift from uh, using line hatching to shade Franklin to using these kind of stippled dots to shade him. I don't know if he did this because he recognized the problematic way in which Franklin and Pigpen looked like each other, or if there was some other reason. I've I've been in touch with the Schultz Research Center and Museum in California, and no one seems to know the biographer, the all the archivists there. There's there's no if if he did have a reason, he never it hasn't been preserved. There's no record of it. Um, so yeah, so my my chapter takes a look at Franklin, you know, as a, you know, really a progressive character, but also one that had kind of this unfortunate aesthetic appearance for almost two decades um, during his his presence in the strip. No, I think it's one of the real strengths of your book, and, and for folks who are interested in peanuts or just in comics or American culture, I think this is a book everyone should should pick up and take a look at, is that it, it's not just a love, a love letter to peanuts, which would be easy for, for anyone to do, uh, but it is a, a very complicated, critical look. So was that hard for you as a person who who said you, you grew up surrounded by Snoopy and Charlie Brown and, and immersed in that element of pop culture to take a step back and, and take at sometimes a bit of a critical look at, at that artifact? Um, I don't I mean, I wouldn't say it was hard for me. I guess for me personally, it was I felt very disappointed in myself that I hadn't noticed it. I mean, mm. you know, I'm 47 years old and I've been reading Peanuts since probably I could read. And I felt embarrassed that I had never, and disappointed that I had never seen this before, you know, that all of a sudden it was like, oh gosh, this is terrible. And I hadn't even noticed before. Um, in terms of like my hesitancy, I mean, I'm a literary critic, that's what I do. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, you know, like students will lament like, oh, you know, talking about this book or this poem, you know, like, and, you know, kind of like digging into it, you know, like, not that it ruined their experience, but, you know, it complicates their view of a character or an author or a plot, you know, by engaging in close critical reading. So that's kind of what I do. I won't say that, you know, my job is ruining everybody's favorite book, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, like looking at something critically, even if that critical insight, that critical viewpoint brings to light elements that are not so flattering or not so positive or just problematic. Um, you know, that's part and parcel of, you know, of what I'm trained to do and what what I do in my work. 
Yes, literary criticism where fun comes to die. No, I, I, to, I, totally, I totally get that. But, but, but I do, and I, what I appreciate about your book, and I, and I will say uh, I, uh, that it would be easy to go one way or the other, either to be a, a love letter and say, isn't this great? Look how groundbreaking it was. Or to be entirely critical and, and, and note all of the ways in which systemic cultural ideologies play themselves out in Peanuts. But I think you do a fabulous job sort of nuancing that. And so I'm wondering, looking forward... You know, Charles Schultz, of course, passed away. We don't have new peanuts. We certainly have a lot of merchandising and reprints and other transmedial products out there in the world. What's the future of peanuts? Will people still be talking about this strip 20 years from now, 50 years from now? How long will our interest in Snoopy, Charlie and the gang last? Well, I think I think, you know, uh, peanuts has kind of had a renaissance the past, I don't know, 10, 10 years or so. I mean, Schultz died in, in early 2000. Um, but there's been a renewed interest and there has been new Peanuts. Um, there was the Peanuts movie in 2015. Yep. There's also um, the Snoopy show on Apple TV, which is really great. I don't know if anyone, if you've seen it or heard of it, but it's 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 all new content. Um, it's all new storylines with Schultz's characters. But the way the animation is done and the plots and the stories and the dialogue, they're very much in keeping with Schultz's spirit. With They're really good. Um, and then also there's new kind of Peanuts graphic novels that have been um, drawn by cartoonist Jane Braddock, which was quite good. I love Jane Braddock's work. Um, Jane's World is one of my favorite. I'm just going to give a, a fangirl shout out. Jane's World is one of my <laughs> favorite uh, comics. And she's been creating new um, Peanuts kind of, they're, they're sort of... I don't want to say they're like easy readers or early readers or 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 middle grade books, but they're they're kind of a graphic text. Um, and those those are all new and those are great. So there has been quite a lot of new peanuts con content um even after Schultz's death. And I think the interest in the strip um and the characters is just as strong. Um mm. I remember when what was it, CBS wasn't going to air um the Charlie Brown um, Thanksgiving special. That's it right. was going to appear, I think, on Apple TV on, on, a, on a, a subscription platform. And people were so disappointed <laughs> and sad that they reversed it, that they or that Apple made it free to watch. I forget if they reversed it and it ended up on CBS or if Apple made it free. I forget. I'd have to look that up, how that played out a few years ago. But it's so beloved and it's become such a tradition, you know, of like holiday viewing that, you know, that people were sad that it was no longer going to be around. So I think that's kind of a testament, you know, to to the ongoing, you know, interest and popularity of at least the characters, if not the newspaper strip. I mean, no one really reads a print newspaper anymore the way they did back when, you know, I was a kid where the newspaper would come to the door, the physical newspaper would come to the door and you'd, you know, pull the sections apart and lay it out on the floor with, you know, your bowl of cereal, <laughs> you know, and read through the the comics, especially on a Sunday. I don't think, you know, many people subscribe to a print newspaper anymore. I don't anymore. Um, but I think I think Schultz's characters are, you know, remain a, a fixture in American culture and American popular culture. And you have done an amazing job with the new book, Blockheads, Beagles and Sweet Baboos, New Perspectives on Charles M. Schultz's Peanuts, giving us a deep insight into that cultural legacy. But now, Michelle, good grief. It is time for the segment of Pop Life we call the Fast Five. So, Michelle, I'm going to ask you five either or questions, all, of course, related to peanuts, and ask you to follow your instinct and pick your favorite option. We're going to begin with question number one. Michelle, Charlie Brown was always, let's say, athletically challenged. And which feat would you most like to see him achieve? Would you want to see him win a baseball championship or finally kick that stupid football? 
I think it's got to be kick the football. <laughs> Isn't it like the entire, I feel like we need that as a national catharsis from all of our existential <laughs> angst. Yes. And like, please just. Absolutely. <laughs> Question number two for you, Michelle. Sticking with Charlie Brown for a moment, you discuss his musical connections. Uh, which of these Charlie Brown songs is on the top of your playlist? Is it the classic Charlie Brown by the Coasters or the 2011 Charlie Brown by Coldplay? Ooh, I think I'd probably have to go with Coldplay. Yep, I'd probably have to go with Coldplay. Yep, I, like I enjoy it. that. The, yep. the newer version? So question number three for you, Michelle. Which of these is your favorite Peanuts television adaptation? Is it a Charlie Brown Christmas or it's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown? I so my birthday is the day before Halloween, and so I will go with the Great Pumpkin. Yes, <laughs> right answer. There are very few right answers, but that was absolutely the right answer. Yep. Question number four for you, Michelle. Whose wedding would you be more excited to attend, Charlie Brown and the Little Red-Haired Girl, or Lucy and Schroeder? Ooh, I think Lucy and Schroeder. I think you'd get more more bang for your entertainment buck at Lucy and Schroeder's wedding. <laughs> I think better music and more likely to have a big conniption fit by somebody. So yes, finally... there'd be there would be drama. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, there would be drama. I want this now. I want this to be a special. So finally, question number five for you, Michelle. Would you rather spend a weekend helping Peppermint Patty with batting practice or helping Pigpen with spring cleaning? Oh, Peppermint Patty. That's no contest. <laughs> it would be a lot more fun and a lot less uh, grime. So, Michelle, we always love to end our episodes by asking our guests, what is in your pop life? Is there anything you're watching, listening to, you're loving out there in pop culture? Ooh, that's a tough question. I'm I'm kind of an omnivore when it comes to pop culture. I, I really, I kind of dabble in all of it. If you look at, you know, some of my publication record, I mean, I've I've written about you know, Calvin and Hobbes. I've written about Disney films. I've, you know, like from comics to movies to animation. That's a tough thing for me to kind of just isolate one thing. Um, in terms of streaming right now, I have to be honest, since we're talking about Peanuts, it's baseball season and I'm a big New York Yankees fan. So uh -huh. in the evening when I wind down, I've been watching Yankees games almost every evening when they're playing. So I can't, it's hard for me to say what's on my streaming list right now because I would have to go with the New York Yankees, which fits perfectly with uh, Charlie Brown and company since baseball, baseball forms such an important part of the strip. So I'm going to go with that. I love it. Let's hope your Yankees are more successful than Charlie's teams. Um, Thanks so much, Michelle. The book is Blockheads, Beagles, and Sweet Baboos, New Perspectives on Charles M. Schultz's Peanuts. And as a reminder to our listeners, next time you think you see the Red Baron heading your way, just remember, it's probably the next episode of Pop Life. I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.